Hi, I'm Stathis, your host. Before we jump in this episode, let me introduce DevRelX. DevRelX is a hub for developer marketing and DevRel professionals. Stay home while DevRelX brings you rich content to boost your DevRel game. Access developer population insights, news, job openings, and more. Discover how to empower developers and grow communities at devrelx.com. Today's episode will start with a quote from our guest. The problem that we were, we trying to solve is how do we replace the, the one-on-one communication, the, the hallway track is a lot of folks talk about. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Under the Hood of Developer Marketing, our Slash Data podcast. I'm Stathis, your host, and I hope everyone is staying healthy. Our podcast is driven towards helping you boost your developer marketing and DevRel game, especially at such uncertain times. So I'm excited to welcome Patrick McFadden, who is the VP of Developer Relations at Datastacks. Patrick, welcome to the show. Will you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. So I'm Patrick McFadden. Um, I, <laughs> I do all sorts of things DevRel at Datastacks. I also work in the Apache Cassandra project quite a bit. Um, so I, I have uh, kind of this multi-role uh, job where I work a lot with an open source project and I work with community development there. I've been working with Cassandra Project for about 10 years now and been at Datastacks for uh, seven years. <laughs> Mainly just, you know, that this has been my job, has been doing a lot of um, work with developers and trying to get, trying to make Cassandra a better choice for everybody. Sounds like you're uh, keeping pretty busy. So how did you end up in your current role? Uh, was there a driving force or uh, a role model, if you want, that led you to where you are today? Well, yeah, so this is the funny, I have a funny backstory state. This is like, I had never thought I would be in developer relations ever. And it's just something that happened to me. I, I have a degree in computer engineering and distributed computing. Um, so I've always been working in that world. And so I've just been someone who's Say I was like the internet plumber, you know, like Luigi. I've always worked in infrastructure and, and, and backend serving. And that's actually what got me to Cassandra. Um, I was a chief architect at another company and I uh, built systems around Cassandra. And I started working at Datastacks to, as a consultant. So I was working in the field doing consulting work for Cassandra. But along the way, I started doing meetups and uh, doing conferences. And everyone said, hey, can you come talk at our conference about Cassandra? And it just started happening where I'm the guy who's talking about Cassandra and no one else is. And it was an, it just like, I remember this one day, our, our, my CEO at the time, uh, Billy Bosworth, called me into his office. He said, hey, I, you know, this whole thing you're doing where you're out talking about Cassandra and you're doing all these meetups and building community. Uh, he's like, I think you should do that all the time. I'm going to take you off of our, you know, out of the field. It's no longer a consultant. And I want you to just focus on this the whole time. And so that was a, that was a moment for me. I'm like, whoa, hold on. This is like a completely different thing for me. But, you know, if I saw, I looked at like, you know, you say, who are the role models out there? You know, I, I was working with a lot of folks in, in, you know, there's a lot of influencers out there. At the time, like um, Adrian Cockcroft, who was a friend of mine, you know, he was the one who really got me into Cassandra, but he also was doing these influency things with, with developers. Like, look, I've done this before. Let me show you some things that might make your life easier. And um, I, I really, I, that was appealing to me. It's like, if I can help some folks do the right thing, 
um, and make their lives a little bit better, because this isn't always easy, then yeah, let's do that. And I really, I really loved the Cassandra community. I loved all the people and what they were doing. So more of that seemed really appealing at the time. And, you know, as I look back, that was kind of the end of my full-time engineering career, which is okay. Um, I still do engineering, uh, but not at the same level, but it's been pretty rewarding. I've been doing it ever since then. It looks like Cassandra found you and, um, you know, your passion for it led the way. But uh, do you, what do you like more? You know, do you miss the engineering more than you like helping people? Well, it's interesting because I, I still get to do the engineering. It's just in a different level. Um, instead of spending, you know, eight hours in front of a keyboard all day doing code, writing code or um, building things, I spend short amounts of time building things. But I, a lot of, I still get to do the collaboration with community members. Um, I've been involved in a lot of really interesting projects just because whenever I I'm talking to community members, they're like, hey, can you come and talk to us about what we're doing? And so I get to be somewhat, I still get to be a consultant in a lot of ways, but it's all in the, you know, in the, the name of building community. So I still get to express that part of myself in a lot of ways. Um, like right now I'm working with the community on our Kubernetes operator for Apache Cassandra. And that, that takes engineering. You know, I have to understand how this works. You know, I'm in the Go code. I get to dig around because I, I feel like as a developer advocate and someone who works with developer communities, you cannot be someone who's sitting on the outside. I, I'm just as much in the code as everyone else. I may not be doing daily commits, but I have to understand it. Yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely true. And um, do you think that in uh, developer relations, marketing or advocacy, do you need to be a developer to be good at it? Um, I, no, I think everyone brings a little some, their own thing to the party. And, you know, I know a lot, of, uh, a lot of people that didn't have a really strong developer background that are really good developer advocates. You know, they, they're some of the best developer advocates I've known have become developers as a part of their job. And that, that is a superpower as well. It's like you're experiencing the same thing everyone else is, and your job is to help them. And so that's an important thing. The direction I came from is also useful, which is I've been doing it for a long time. I have some expertise in this, and now I want to give back to the community in some way. That, that's also useful. So um, anyone who wants to get into developer relations, I, wouldn't, I don't say that there's like a, an entry level where you have to be this proficient or yeah, you must have 10 years of experience as a developer before you can even think about it. I, I, that's just not the case. Um, if you have a passion for telling stories, for learning new things, for um, sharing those things with people, then that, that's a good recipe that you're going to be successful. I think this is uh, something that will make very happy people that are uh, now considering, you know, or looking at um, to engage in such a role or uh, towards this direction. So it's, uh, this is a question we ask everyone. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Another thing we ask everyone is, um, and uh, mostly because uh, very fun answers come from there, what is a habit that you picked up in your childhood and you still carry to your work life today? <laughs> a good habit, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it can be both, but yeah, let's focus on the good stuff. <laughs> well, yeah, I, you know, this is interesting because I just wrote a blog about this because it was something that, it, it is something that dawned on me fairly recently is, um, you know, I was, I grew up in rural America and like way out in the middle of nowhere. Um, 
basically on a farm. And, you know, that, that's a very different kind of lifestyle. But, you know, when you grow up in a rural area, especially in a, a you know, agrarian economy, like people farming and cutting down trees, that sort of thing, you learn there's, there's a sense of community that's really important because there isn't a lot of people there and you have to rely on each other. Um, I, I talked about, you know, growing up in rural America it was, it was an interesting experience for me as it relates to community and building, you know, these strong ties because the thing you learn is there's no secrets. You, you don't hold on to information as a, as, and not share it. If you have a better way to do something, you share it with your neighbors, you share it with your friends. And that was a habit that I picked up really early. You know, there was, there was organizations that I was involved in as a child. Um, one was called 4-H, which is, is basically like sharing information about um, raising cattle and chickens and raising crops and things like that. And it was just based on open information, sharing information. And it's just my default now. I'm always surprised when people hang on to information and keep it to themselves as like some sort of advantage. Um, it doesn't make it doesn't make the community better, and I, I just feel like that's just built in now. I, I can't take it out, and that was something I, I from when I was just really as as far back as I can remember. I'm 100 sure this is the best habit you know to to pick up uh, for the role you're in. So yeah. Sure, that, that's great. And um, I think you're the perfect person for uh, what we have next. So starting with this episode, we'll introduce a new section. The section is called Let's Talk Data. You can go to DevRelX, our DevRel portal, which is full of free resources, and um, pick a graph that uh, stands out to you from our trends page. Then uh, we'll talk about why. It stands out to you. And uh, for our listeners, I will add a link to the episode description so they can refer to it when listening to the episode. So have you picked a graph from devrelix.com slash trends that says something to you? Yeah, so I, I, I mean, this is an easy choice for me, but it also seems kind of obvious. It was the very first graph I saw on the page, which it's immediately hit me. It's like, yes, I want to talk about this. And that has to do with these this fast growing this developer populations where uh, JavaScript, Python, and Kotlin have grown the fastest in the past two years. And, you know, I think that's an easy, you can jump on that and say, oh, yay, my language is winning. But I, I'm not looking at it with that kind of uh, an eye. What I'm looking at is like, what, what do these languages have in common? And what does it say about developer populations now? Do you want me to pause here or do you want me to keep going? <laughs> no, no, please keep going. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, because we also want to learn, you know, um, why is it so important that, for example, Kotlin is um, it's growing so fast? Which is uh, one from our research, and this data is uh, pretty recent; it just came up last week. So, uh, why is it so important that Kotlin is growing so fast? So, the the three languages that you guys put at the top there, JavaScript, Python, and Kotlin, they all share the same characteristics, which is they make developers' lives easier. They're faster to get things out. They're faster to work with. Um, you can iterate over your code faster. They don't require a lot of ceremony. Um, uh, Kotlin is a great example, right? It, Kotlin was born of Java is, has too much ceremony. And, you know, it's, it's like <laughs> the going joke is, you know, the, the two-page hello world in Java. And, um, of course, it's, you know, you got to set up all this stuff to get it to work. And when you look at the pace 
of development now, every developer is behind schedule and stressed out. I think I, I can assume that. And if you're putting really big requirements in front of them for a language, it just, it sucks because you don't want to, you know, and it's funny because I see C++ is still out there getting it done. But, you know, I think it's, it's because C++ is like, all right, well, if you absolutely positively have to have something that's right next to the metal, then use C++. You know, I think, yeah, there's a place for that. But for developers who need to get something out there quickly, you look at the, you know, the languages that require less ceremony are going to win. And especially with new developers. Um, and I think this is the a really interesting stat that I keep hearing is, you know, that, that the most developers have less than five years of experience. That's, I think that's pretty crazy statements. Uh, don't you? <laughs> well, uh, I do. And uh, what the other thing we see is that the developer population is growing so fast, you know, every year there for, for example, since last year, we had two plus million developers. Uh, coming in, yeah, so, yeah, it, it definitely makes sense for, uh, as you said, it. You want to make their lives easier, so by default, someone's new to the field will opt with something that, you know, doesn't require them, you know, so much hustle for uh, a simple task, and you know, will just choose the thing that makes the work, as you said, faster, uh, quicker, and uh, much easier for them. And, and another thing that I hear from employers is they're not interested in bringing people on board and having six months of, of ramp up time before they're productive. Um, I've, heard, I've heard some big shops say they want their, a, a brand new developer to be productive the first day. That's crazy. Don't, I mean, have you heard that before? No, this is the first time I hear it. And uh, honestly, I, crazy is the word for, for it. Yeah, and it fits into the world we're trying to create. Uh, you know, the, the software is eating the world, of course, and so then that's I think that's why it's the fastest growing um, field in work. And you know, this is just what's getting we're building the future on software. Um, it's not going to slow down. It's the if you look at U.S. statistics, it's the number one green card application. It's the number one H one B application. It's because you know this is where the jobs are, and. Um, it's not going to slow down, but it's also not going to get, employers are not going to be less inclined to have non-productive coders. They want people to put stuff out as quickly as possible, especially now with like COVID-19. We need an application out yesterday. Yeah, that's true. And already people are, are working on it. I want to trace a little bit back to, to what you said about making developers' lives easier. Uh, you are saying it for the programming languages, of course, but this is the thing that I think it's just in the center of developer marketing, you know, making developers' lives easier and empowering them to do the, the best work possible with the tools you have. So um, how do you think it's developer advocacy different than developer relations or marketing? Yeah, and, we, and then we can even throw evangelists in there too. Um, evangelists, yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's where I think the, the conversations start feeling like you're, you're just splitting hairs or something. You're like, aren't they all the same thing, really? You know, it's, at DataStax, we, we had an evangelist team. I was a chief evangelist for a long time. And we did make the decision to switch to using the term developer advocacy. And as I see it, and I think one of the best ways to describe it is a developer advocate it has a two has two jobs, really. It is 
it's outward facing, it's working with developers to help them, but it's also that advocacy is internal as well. So, you know, like our developer advocates work with our product teams. They're like, hey, you guys are making our developers' lives terrible by doing this thing. Or, hey, this is making it awesome for our developers. Do more of that. And our developer advocates are truly advocating for the external developer. You know, that's their con- the external developer's conduit to our product and engineering teams is through our developer advocates. So if you look at it in that term, that developer advocacy is very different from just developer relations. Like how do I make sure that I'm creating good relationships with our developer teams that are external? The distinction, you know, I'm pretty sure it's clear for you. And uh, the other thing I want to say, because you mentioned COVID for uh, COVID-19 is that, you know, we've talked a lot about how much events are uh, an integral part of it being advocacy, marketing relations or, or evangelism, because this is, the place where you actually meet developer and get to interact with them direct, directly face-to-face. Currently, with everything that's going on around the world, events are out of the mix, until further notice, at least. Mm. So where do you think that developer marketers should invest their energy and resources? Yeah, and that happens so quickly, too. Um, I, it, there, was a, there was a shockwave that went through the developer relations community it just because it was it, it started as well we need to be cautious oh you know we need to you know we need to be careful about events and, and then all of a sudden all the events just started canceling and it it happened almost in a, literally in a week there was just this cascade like google io and worldwide developer conference and then um kubecon in, in amsterdam and i mean just one after the other and it, it it's not going to stop i mean i we haven't heard about Dreamforce or Oracle Open World or reInvent, but I mean, I'm sure that those are now, there's questions about those. So, you know, we went from having conferences every week to zero. So there's a, this question you're asking, like, what's next? Everyone's asking that. And I think that um, it's great. I've been talking about this somewhat publicly. Is I think that, that there's a, this is a moment where we should really think about what we've created with events. They can be pretty exclusive. If you have the money or the means to get there, then you can go. If not, then you are not invited in a lot of ways. You just can't make it. And it, it creates these exclusive areas in our communities. So where should, you know, where should people invest? I think this is the opportunity is how do we, how do we, try to get those personal relationships and things that are happening at conferences. I mean, if you put talks, like if you think of the sessions, sessions can go on YouTube or whatever form of video you want to do. That, we've done that. that. That's not a complicated problem. The problem that we were, we're trying to solve is how do we replace the, the one-on-one communication, the, the hallway track, as a lot of folks talk about. Um, there's a there's a really interesting DevRel conference that uh, is kind of self-organizing. It's the FlyLess comp. Um, if you go to, I think it's uh, flyless.dev, there's a small, you know, small and growing community of developer relations people that are just asking these questions right now. Like, what, how do we do developer relations in a non-event world? And there's some really cool stuff happening. And it, like at Datastax, we've been, we switched all our workshops to online. And we're using things like Discord and Twitch and uh, multi-streams to YouTube and Facebook and LinkedIn with all the interactivity happening like places like Discord. And we've seen such an enormous 
just so much connection with people now. They're, the engagement level is off the charts. And granted, it's because everybody is in lockdown right now. And of course, we have a lot of people's attention. But I think that there, this is the opportunity I see starting to creep up is that everybody in technology um, has a minimum amount of technology that they have access to or else they wouldn't be in this job. They, what they may not have access to is to be able to travel or do that sort of thing. Or maybe they don't even feel comfortable going to a conference. But they can engage in something like uh, Discord is a good example because you could split off into separate rooms. And we've done that. Hey, I want to talk about my thing. Okay, a couple people check out and go out and talk about it. And just the more normalization of things like uh, Zoom and Jitsi, where we can have one-on-one conversations virtually. But just think of how do we touch people, you know, reach out and touch people's, um, create those connections without actually having to be in a place. It doesn't, it, you would have never said this two months ago, but now everybody's thinking about it. So I, I think this is the future and creating those connections is like, how do you get there in front of somebody who really needs to hear this information? Everybody still has needs. So how do you get the need, that needful thing in front of them? in a way that you can connect with them personally. It was uh, a shock in the industry, especially, you know, uh, April, March is very hot on event season. Mm. So uh, my next question you kind of touched uh, upon it is uh, how do you see developer relations evolving in the future? So do you think that this uh, shock that came and uh, forced us to create new ways to, to interact that are non-physical, do you think that these tools could then be utilized even if we return back to normal more so that they, they can use them to create more one-on-one relationships? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, because we've already established some, some sort of normalization with using things like Discord and Slack. I mean, name anybody in a developer community who doesn't have at least three or four Slacks that they're running right now. It's just, it's a part of our culture and our life. We've used it as kind of a, a sidecar to everything else we do. I think what we'll, what we'll see kind of post in this, in the future and post COVID is as we, as we learn a new way of being, especially in the next two or three years, I don't, it's pretty clear from everything I've seen. It's like, this isn't going to go, over, go away overnight and it'll be a constant thing that we're going to have to worry about for a long time, but in a different way, we're just going to be more thoughtful. What I, I think is going to be very interesting is seeing the, the reinvigoration of the local groups, like a local meetup group or a user group, where you have small groups of people meeting, and that's, that's great. It sets up that network. And, but it also, I think we're all kind of learning, uh, relearning, like, oh, this is actually pretty useful. Consuming information in a digital way, like using YouTube or Twitch or something like that, is actually turning out to be really that people are really enjoying it because they're like, oh, I can, it's just like, well, I could go to a concert or listen to this thing on Spotify. Well, it's on, on demand. I'm going to watch, you know, I can watch this on Spotify. And sometimes that's more appealing. It, it fits into people's lives better. And, and we've broken down those barriers in this current situation that I think is going to keep going. I, the, the one data point that I would point to is esports. Um, esports is one of the fastest growing segments right now. And I think as developer education goes and how people consume information, we should watch how esports works because that, that generation is going to be that next generation of developers. And this is the way they choose to consume information. 
Yeah, that's true. Esports is also, you know, growing very fast. And now that traditional sport is uh, off the list, maybe we'll see them growing even more. So yeah. uh, the future, <laughs> the future uh, is yet to be seen. Uh, we'll have to see how everything plays out. Let's talk about something we already know, and uh, mainly in the past. So, what has been your biggest challenge in developer relations? Oh man, I, it, I think this is the one that it's hard to talk about sometimes because everyone has their own stories. But it's working with your own in your own organization, and developer relations is is not really establishes like marketing, sales, engineering, those are established parts of a technical organization. Of course you have marketing. Developer relations has been in and out of favor for a lot of technical organizations for a long time. And I, I talk to folks in developer relations all the time that are like, they feel like they're always justifying their job. And you, if you don't have a revenue target, then you're probably a target, right? And uh, that's too bad. I think that has been changing quite a bit in the past few years. Big companies like Microsoft, Google, Amazon have made such a, a big play into developer relations that they've normalized it and pretty much made it important for any company in technology to keep up. So I, you know, when we, when we look at um, the challenges, it's gonna be, I, unfortunately, the, challenge, the biggest challenge I feel are internal. It will never stop to amaze me, you know, when, every time I hear this thing. And I think it's like 60% of the time, this is the, the answer I get, you know, internal, because you, there are different ways. We've talked about uh, metrics for uh, quite a long, and it's always a challenge finding the right metrics, finding the, the real value you bring into the organization and communicating this internally. Yeah, that's, yeah, it, it is a, I think there is a measure of faith unfortunately, that has to go into it. If a senior leadership team at a company says, we need developer relations, they have to, they have, to have a reason they think it's, it, it is important. And it isn't because it will drive metric A. They have to believe in the reason that, that developers for our product are important first. And that's a measure of faith. Yeah, that's definitely true. So you, you said from the beginning that you've been you know, involved with Cassandra for quite a long time. And um, you know, how do you think is uh, DevRel for open source different from DevRel for a vendor? Yeah, well, this is kind of my life, you're right. Uh, <laughs> DevRel for <laughs> open source. Ask, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, it's, oh boy. Um, and probably one of the biggest, it, this is a good setup for one of the biggest challenges you can have in developer relations because you're fighting then that there's two things we're fighting at this point. For instance, my teams have always been involved in open source projects and sometimes the open source, you talk about the open source project without ever talking about your company. And you know, that can run afoul for a lot of folks <laughs> at the company. They're like, why are we paying you to do that? But if you're at a company that believes in open source, then you see, well, we're going to create abundance in this open source model. And that's important. And that's part of the developer relations, uh, like how is that different is, you know, having someone who works on an open source project or a company that works with an open source project, you're going to be, yes, I'm, I'm okay with this group of individuals bouncing back and forth between being a part of the company and being all for that open source project and, and growing that open source project, participating in that open source project. When you get that, like Dave Stacks, we're there. I mean, our, our CEO down, 
is all in on what we do with the open source Apache Cassandra. And it makes our lives a lot easier. That's for sure. Cause there's no, there's no hiding or duality in it. It's, this is, it's all part of what our mission is. So um, that's, that's really important. But if you're, I, I have to be a little jealous for a, you know, for a DevRel team that's just for a vendor because your life is a lot easier <laughs> in that case. You don't have to deal with this duality. Yeah, and uh, just, you know, just to bring some data on the table because this is what we do. Uh, we talk data here. Uh, mm-hmm. As a number, putting a number to what you just said, it's like uh, we've just seen that three out of five developers contribute to, to open source software and around 30% it's to, to improve the coding skills and... Uh, close to 20, 25% it's to, because they believe that it's free speech and uh, because it's fun. So you have a lot going there as a general guy for an open source project. So yeah, this is what uh, led to, to the question. And um, this begs the other one, because what do you think community is so important for open source? Uh, it's the lifeblood of any open source project. Open source projects rely on the, on the, generosity of others and you can you can pay someone to work on a project sure and there's plenty of companies that do and i'm very grateful for that but you know if i and i'll just be somewhat personal about this if i think about about the community of apache cassandra users it's it's a very it's a strong community it's people that i have built lifelong friendships with but it also creates this this commonality you know i think humans are inherently tribal we, we like our people and, you know, these communities that form around this, it, it serves like that passion in our lives. It's like, yes, that's what I want to do. And it, what's, it's what moves open source forward. The code is important. The project is important, but the people are the most important because without the people, nothing happens. It's a dead project. And I think you've seen, you could probably look at examples where, you know, the community died off. It lost, it just wasn't nurtured. It, it just kind of killed the whole project. And it's never because this, you know, it's never because the, the project itself is broken, like the code is broken. It's because the community is broken that the project doesn't go on. So, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, this is, this will be everything that we move forward with, you know, is, is Ant, for instance, as Amazon is becoming more involved in Apache Cassandra, they're a part of the community. They're talking, they're a part of the community now. And that's great. We want more people in our community. We, we're, you know, we're seeing these huge growth of community in China right now. And it's fantastic because talk about breaking down walls. I have friends in almost <laughs> every time zone on the planet. And it's because we have this common thing that we work towards. Um, and I, I, when travel is lifted, I can't wait to go to China and meet more people there because I know that we already have something in common and it's pretty cool. Yeah, it is pretty cool. And um, I want to ask, how do you think it's a, it's a good way to encourage more people to join an open source community? Well, I think first and foremost is, is this something that you're, is it something you're passionate about? Yeah, you don't, you don't join an open source community uh, because you're bored. <laughs> it's like you got to have a reason to do it, uh, but you can also look at it as a, it's a way to enhance your career in a lot of ways. Is becoming involved in an open source project gives you access to a lot of things, and especially you know you think about like all the important things that are happening on the internet right now are open source projects, mostly. And if you're a front end developer, you're probably using Angular, React, Vue. 
if you're doing middleware, you know, you're probably using something like, um, oh, well, right now it's everyone's jumping into Kubernetes like crazy. So it's like microservices, Nginx, Istio, and Envoy, MuleSoft, you know, all those different things. And then on the back end, all the databases, you know, the MySQLs, the Cassandras, and all of these are open source projects. And, you know, getting involved in that gets you a little further down the road, but it's like, it also plugs you into a community of like-minded people that can help your career move forward. So your role there is to, to support and help the community in any way you can. But sometimes, you know, mistakes happen. How do you get back to your community if you make a mistake? I will, I will clarify that mistakes will always happen. Um, it's, if it hasn't happened to you, it's just a matter of when. And it's because communities are made of people and sometimes the, you know, people disagree. And it can, get, it can get really muddy whenever you have your job in corporations that are involved as well. And, and sometimes you know, these, the interests align and sometimes they don't. And you can make mistakes. Mistakes will be made. And just like, and this is, this is like advice I would give my kids. If you make a mistake, and you know this is an important thing is you have to have your self-realization, I've made a mistake. And then the important thing is to restore, you know, to go admit your mistake, restore, try to do something restorative, you know, apologize, do something for the people that have been wronged and just move forward. This is how, because communities are people, that's how you have to treat it is how do if you make a mistake with, you know, your spouse or with your, your brother or sister or somebody like your family member, then, you know, you're, you're going to try to make it up and you're going to say, I'm sorry, I did this. This is wrong. Here's how I'm going to make up for it. And then, and I think most people move on from that. And that's, that's the best thing we can hope for. I don't think there's anything other magic than that. The worst thing you can do is become severely combative and not own up to it and walk away. It's just terrible for our community. And I guess it's, this is not a way if you want to build trust within the community. So oh, Yeah, trust is currency. That the only thing we have to exchange with each other at that level in a community is our trust. And if you lose it, you have nothing to exchange. So you've been long involved with uh, communities. We've, we've covered that. Do you think that uh, its developer community has a particular style, if you want, or uh, a persona? Uh, with with the Cassandra project or just in general? Uh, both both work for me. I, I also want to hear about the Cassandra and uh, your, your the overall idea that you have with regard to to developer community personas or styles. Yeah, the developer community style. Um, I mean, there's a lot of different there's a lot of different sub communities inside of developer communities, of course. But you know, like the the people that I work with, you know, they're generally they want to make something pretty cool. You know, and, I, and they're excited to learn about something else that's cool. And, um, you know, that, that's kind of the persona that I have is like, you know, we're all just running downhill together and it's so exciting. But it's also this, this need to, um, no one wants to miss out. <laughs> this fear of missing out is really pervasive. And maybe that's just part of being a developer is like, you don't want to just sit back and relax and say, well, I learned everything I'm going to learn. Um, you know, the, these communities of developers are just, oh my God, go to Hacker News and just hit refresh every five minutes. Like, what's the next thing that everyone's excited about? Um, there's just nothing sitting still at all. 
Yeah, this is also the way to, to bring progress. I think it Run, is. even if it's running downhill altogether, you know, excited and friendly about it. Ah, yeah. I mean, I, I, just look at just front end development. <laughs> we went from <laughs> ExpJS, <laughs> and then I, there was something in the middle, and I can't remember what it was. And all of a sudden, everyone jumped on Angular, and then React, now Vue. I mean, it's like it moves so fast, and they're all legitimate and they're all awesome. But you know, you you just yeah, you if you're not paying attention to the what's where it's going and what's moving, then you're going to be obsolete in about a week. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Patrick, I think we can talk forever here, but uh, I think we need to do bring this episode to a close. If our listeners want to hear more from you or want to reach out to you, how can they do so? Sure. Um, well, I the easiest thing is to find me on LinkedIn, just Patrick McFadden, and there's only one of me, I think, on there. There's not a lot of us. Um, it's a unique spelling of my last name. That's what does it. Or you can find me on Twitter. Those are the easiest place. Or if you happen to be on the uh, ASF Slack, you can find me over there too. And in just given the, the, the way things are working with events right now, we're having our own virtual event, the DataStax Accelerate Conference. Uh, season one starts May 12th, and I'll be on there, of course. Um, but yeah, you can go to datastax.com slash accelerate. Uh, what's your Twitter handle? Just uh, at Patrick McFadden, all one word. Okay, that's great. No one can miss that. Uh, Patrick, yeah, nothing cryptic. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much for joining us for this episode. Status, thank you very much. And uh, for our listeners, thank you for listening to Under the Hood of Developer Marketing, the podcast devoted to developer marketing and relations. If you want more episodes and resources, including industry news, or if you're looking for a new job, make sure to visit devrelx.com and subscribe to our bi-weekly digest or just follow us on Twitter at slash data HQ for regular updates.